Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. You saw that title and let's be honest, you thought it was clickbait, didn't you? Be honest, yes you did, but it's not. We're joined by Simon Elliott, who's going to talk to us about Roman Britain's pirate king. But Simon is going to do things a little bit differently with us, because Simon is going to introduce himself. See if you can kind of work out what we're poking fun at with this one. My name is Dr. Simon Elliott, archaeologist, historian and broadcaster, trustee of the Council of British Archaeology, honorary research fellow of the University of Kent, ambassador for Museum of London Archaeology, and I will have my revenge in this world or the next. Chills. Pure chills. Yeah, we just trolled. Um... Russell Crowe. Sorry, Russell. Uh, let's be honest, you're not listening, but um, it had to be done um, because we're, we're just going with the memes at this point. Um, we, we, could, we could have a giggle about this all day, couldn't we? Um, I am going to just, I'm, I'm, I'm um, just kind of advertise you a little bit more. 16 books. That's 16 books. Impressive. 16 um, books, yeah. Including how the Roman military built the empire. Roman Britain's Missing Legion, Alexander versus Caesar. But today, folks, we are looking at Roman Britain's Pirate King, Carousius. I probably horrifically butchered the pronunciation there. Constantinus and Chlorus and the fourth Roman invasion of Britain. We're not doing the predictable Caesar one. We're going with the fourth one. I'll be honest. I'm an absolute imbecile 
when it comes to this. Um, I had some very basic reading to do to try and put the questions together for this one. Simon, great to see you. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing very, very well. With your basic reading, the wiki is pretty accurate, actually. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? There you go. Amazing. Like sometimes Amazing. Wikipedia might actually be the answer. Amazing. Like I said at the start, I feel like our listeners will think we're trolling them with this title because you go pirates and pirate kings and all the rest of it. And let's be honest, they start thinking of pirates of the Caribbean, don't they? So how did you come across this story? This is the absolute beauty, actually, because um, as, a, as an archaeologist and a historian, I can go all the way back to answer your question to the sources. So we're talking about a period of time in the late third century AD when we're, to, we're after the period of the great principate historians like Cassius Dio, uh, who I really like, even though he's very gossipy. I think he's a very good historian. But we're after that time now, so we're relying on the narrative here to the later Roman historians, some of the Latin writers, um, but also, crucially, for some key panegyrics. Now, a panegyric is a eulogy given by somebody in the court who really, really wants to impress a given emperor. So stands up in front of an emperor, let's say it's Constantine the one, or his father Constantius Chlorus, and says, you're amazing, and then finds different ways of saying that for about 10 hours. Okay, uh, And within that 10 hours, you can pick out threads of various real pieces of history and in a number of these panegyrics, we have this individual who is not named in the panegyrics. He's just called the pirate. The pirate or the usurper, he's given names which denigrate him, which don't give him, uh, don't, don't actually name him, so don't give him the credit of even existing. And even when you go to the primary sources which talk about Carausius and actually name him, remember that they're written from the perspective of the imperial centre, so they're, they're very negative. So the beauty of this story is, number one, the classical sources do call my guy, Carausius, a pirate, number one. And number two, as an archaeologist, it's a great story for me to get to grips with because not only do I have these various examples of history written at the time or shortly afterwards to work from, but because they're so negative, I then have to put them and set them against archaeological data. And when you look at the archaeological data, a completely different story emerges about Carausius, because Carausius actually, when he usurped in Britain, and we'll talk later about the actual chronology, but when he usurped in Britain, he created uh, Roman Britain's first ever mint. Now, bear in mind that he usurped in 286 AD. The province was announced in AD 43. That's a hell of a long period of time. And yet it was Carausius who created Britain's first mint. And, and the reason is he was one of the great PR men of the ancient world. Um, it was Carausius who looked at the British coinage, having usurped and realised he needed to, through the coinage, send a very clear message, particularly those who could access silver and gold coins, that he was a real deal. So he increased the, 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 the silver or gold content in his top end coins far, to, to a level far greater than those being minted in the imperial centre by the um, two uh, emperors in the West and the East, Maximian and Diocletian. The message there saying, I'm the real deal. I'm bringing the Roman values of the original province back. And then later, his coins feature imagery which resonates with some of the great stories of the Roman past. So he has quotes on his coins from Virgil. And then even later, to say that he's at the equivalent level of the likes of uh, Maximian and Diocletian. Remember, Diocletian is one of the great emperors of the Roman Empire, actually. Um, he mints coins with three faces on one's his, 
one's Maximian, one's Diocletian. He's saying, I'm your equal. So this is a great PR man. He knows exactly how to talk to his audiences, especially the great and the good. So it was brilliant for me to be able to set the archaeological data, which I'm always passionate about. I'm an archaeologist, next to a negative body of written work and then to come up with a real story. Wow, that's an answer and a half. Um, I, I want to go back to the panegyrics, if I can. Yep. Ten-hour kind of testimonies of how wonderful you are. I know there are some people who are deeply narcissistic, but do we know about the receptions of those? Do, do people not get a bit bored or go, oh, yeah, another compliment? I'm, I'm no, well, I think I, I, the, the whole process is very formalised. Uh, basically... <laughs> It's like going to the arena in, in, in the Roman world as well. Once you were invited to the arena or once you were a member of the court, you were there and then you couldn't go until the emperor cleared off. And if there was a panegyric being delivered, sort of eulogising the emperor, you applauded for the 10 hours. <laughs> you, you, you didn't go to the loo. You just basically clenched and you stay there and you continue to support the emperor who's your benefactor in the court until he got bored basically now 10 hours may be an exaggeration but some of these did go on for hours and if you were in the court when they were being delivered you stayed there and you clapped and you clapped and you said amazing amazing what a wonderful emperor the the the, the reconstitute of the roman empire i think you're amazing clap 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 napoleon would have loved it i'm just going to put that out there uh, napoleon would have absolutely loved it when macy didn't bring it back but we're going to stop trying Napoleon and start talking some uh, ancient history here because 3rd century AD, this isn't a period of the Roman Empire that I'm particularly familiar with. I think a lot of us just kind of get sucked into that sort of uh, either the, 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 the fracturing of the empire or um, the, the Caesar era, if you will, and sort of Octavian and all the rest of it. So set the scene for us. Where are we in the story of the Roman Empire writ large at this moment in time? So it's a really, really good point, Zach, actually, because the in, in terms of Roman Britain in particular, by the way, Carausius had a North Sea Empire. So his usurpation was Britain initially, uh, Britain all the way through, but initially also Northwestern Gaul, which we'll come on to in the narrative. Um, but in terms of British history in the Roman period, there's a huge gap actually in the narrative with only bits and bobs surviving from the time of the campaigns of Septimius Severus trying to conquer Scotland with 50,000 men in 209 and 210, which are the largest campaigning forces ever on um, British soil, subject to my book, Septimius Severus in Scotland. Bit of a plug there, I hope you don't mind. And then all the way through to uh, the time of Carausius. Big gap, really. We know lots of what's happening elsewhere in the empire. And one of the reasons you have this big gap is we're in the phase where you transition from the Principate, which is the high empire, as it were, to the Dominate, which is the later empire. Joining the two, you have this period from AD 235 to AD 284, from the assassination of uh, Alexander Severus, the last Severan emperor, through to the accession of the great Diocletian, a period called the crisis of the third century and this was a terrible period in the roman empire where you have um the first really large-scale depredating raiding across the rhine and danube by germans and goths you have the the advent of the sassanid persians in the east who were the first symmetrical threat faced by the roman empire really who could toe-to-toe -to -toe stand with them one for one um, you have the plague of Cyprian, topically for the age in which we live, which lasted 20 years and was a terrible plague across the whole empire. You have multiple usurpations uh, and the whole and, and huge amounts of civil war. And together, 
it causes a massive economic crash. Um, and it took the great Diocletian to drag the empire kicking and screaming out of this crisis by creating a brand new form of empire, the dominate empire. So in the, uh, now, importantly for us, the crisis of the third century impacted the whole empire, including Britain. But in Britain, uh, it had one very specific outcome as well, which is totally relevant to this story. And it's the beginning of the story. And it's about the Roman Navy in Britain. So the, the Britain's first fleet was the Classis Britannica, uh, an Augustan regional fleet, which while it existed from the Claudian invasion 43 AD through to, as I'm going to describe, the middle of the crisis of the third century, it kept um, control of the North Sea, the Atlantic approaches and the English Channel. Uh, and therefore there was no dep uh, depredating raiding taking place on the East or South Coast. But it disappears in AD 249. It's last mentioned then in 249 uh, in the tombstone of a Navarcus, so a captain of the Classis Britannica called um, Saturninus, who was born in North Africa, uh, served in Britain in the Classis Britannica, and then was buried in Ireland, south of France. Very cosmopolitan Roman story, actually. Uh, and that's the last mention. And from that time, the fleet disappears. And of course, if you have no fleet controlling the open ocean, then the littoral along the coast is completely exposed to raiding. And that's what happens. So we jump forward to 286, okay? Two years after Diocletian has taken control of the empire, at the point of a sword has become uh, the emperor in 284. And he's beginning this process of dragging the empire out of the crisis. Um, and to do that, he appoints a Western co-emperor called Maximian. He's based in Nicomedia in the east, and Maximian's based in Milan. And Maximian gets word at the point he's appointed in 286 that in the North Sea, there's so much raiding that the link between Britain and the continental empire is being severed. Uh, he uses the phrase in the history books, endemic raiding. So clearly Germanic piracy from the far north of Germany. So what we would later call Angles or Saxons or Jutes, uh, we're talking about Frisia, Saxony, Jutland, maybe even southern Scandinavia, maybe basically proto-Vikings. Even their vessels appear to have been similar to Viking vessels, maybe without a sail. So these are the ancestors of the Vikings. This is the raiding that begins along the east and the south coast to the extent where it becomes endemic and there's a problem. So Maximian looks around who he can appoint to deal with this and he picks one of his generals who's been very successful fighting on the Rhine against the Franks and this is Carausius. Now Carausius is originally from the Rhine Delta, so he's Belgium, the second most famous Belgium after Hercule Poirot. And uh, he, he, he is the real deal. Uh, he's a successful general, but because he comes from the Rhine Delta, he's also a very experienced um, admiral and ship's captain. So he rebuilds a fleet from scratch, and then he successfully stops the raiding in 286. Now, bear in mind the distances that news travels. Word reaches Maximian in Milan that Carausius is being so successful because he's in cahoots with the pirates, and this is why he gets called in the, the Panagyarics pirate. Uh, and word reaches Maximian that he's actually pocketing the loot along with the pirates. So for some reason, Maximian falls for this hook, line and sinker and therefore declares that Carausius is going to be executed, which is a major, major sort of overplaying of his hand. So there's clearly something missing there in the narrative we have about what really happened. But it did happen because Carausius usurps because he thinks he's going to be executed, creates his North Sea Empire, which is initially uh, the region around northwestern Gaul in Boulogne, and 
Britannia. And he's very successful, going back to my earlier point, initially because he's a brilliant PR operator. I just, sorry to drag this backwards a bit, but you said the Navy disappears. Yeah. Do we have any semblance of why? Is there any evidence of a defeat? Is it pulled back for strategic reasons? I mean, for a Navy to, we always bang on about a Legion disappearing, and, and that's a kind of a bit of a myth in itself. But for a whole fleet to just not have any any tangible evidence relating to it, it seems quite major. Do we know why? Is it lack of maintenance? Or is it pure guesswork? We just don't know. Actually, that's about, I mean, you, you've, you've, you've hit the nail right on the head with your last comment there, actually. So the CLBR, the Class of Britannica, I estimate in my, one of my, my first book actually was called Seagulls of Empire. It's the story of the Class of Britannica talk for the first time in 2016. Um, it had 700 ships, so 700, probably 9,000 men. And the warships would have comprised this is this is not the Mediterranean Ben Hur, Antony and Cleopatra, Quinca Marines, etc. You know, huge warships. By this time, at this time, there's no symmetrical threat, so therefore the ships are smaller. So the warships are Liburnae galleys, biremes, uh, and then you have uh, transport vessels as well, and then cutters and skiffs and that kind of thing. But in total, numbering 700 with 9,000 crew crew of one of the Liburnae would have been probably about 100 men, 80 rowing, who were all professional rowers, by the way, never slaves, uh, and then 20 marines and, and deck crew. So that's your Liburnae uh, galley. Um, now, that's a lot of ships, not just to build, but the word you used there, mate, was spot on, maintain. Uh, my, my first job, actually, I was, a, I, was a, I was the naval editor of James Defence Weekly, which is like a leading aerospace and defence business magazine. So I've always had a, a, a really... I would hope deep knowledge of uh, navies. And I do know that although ships of all periods in history are very expensive to build, it's even more expensive over time to maintain them. And my view, and I set it out in Seagulls of Empire, is that in the middle of the crisis of the third century, begins 235, ends 284, we're talking about 249 with Saturninus, okay? In the middle, there's just no money to maintain the fleet. Basically, Britain, Roman Britain is bankrupt, along with other huge tracts of the empire. And then once the fleet's gone, it takes a shocking event, as in the North Sea overrun by pirates in the mid-280s, for the imperial centre again to say, you know what, actually, um, Britain's a, the, uh, we, we recognise that Britain's probably the Wild West of the Roman Empire. We recognise it's not as profitable as many other parts of the empire, but it is profitable. We also recognise that as emperors, Maximian, particularly Diocletian, we don't want to have the PR disaster of losing a province. So therefore, we need to do something really dramatic. It takes that to force them to rebuild a fleet. Okay, So you're talking about a period of over 30 years, probably, where there's no fleet, which is why the raiding takes place. By the way, Zach, it's no surprise. It's in this period when you start getting the major wall circuits being built around most of the Roman urban centres in Britain, and you get the earliest of what we later call the Saxon shore forts being built as well. I mean, you've just answered there my next question, which was how does Carosius end up kind of finding the money and convincing somebody to invest in, in building a new fleet so that, that kind of comes from the centre? But I'm just curious about this kind of period of, of what you were saying about how Maximin, Maximinian Maximian. talks... Maximian, apologies. Welcome to, welcome um, to, no, no, don't apologise. Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> Latin was never my forte. 
Um, much that my Latin master was very patient. Um, how does the Roman army deal with the fact that at, at points it's basically cut off from, I mean, we're talking about supplies, we're talking about potentially even reinforcements. You know, if, if, you're, if you're not able to communicate effectively and you're not able to um, trade effectively with the rest of your empire, that has a substantial impact on, on basic things like control, like Very much the, so. the local population, yeah. um, you know, resources coming in to, and, and sure, you can kind of talk about Rome as a, as a Roman Britain as a potentially self-sufficient province. Obviously, you can source things locally if you need to, but nonetheless, there's a reason it's a part of the empire, yeah. and that's because it needs to be to work. So how does how does all of this have an impact on Britain? Does are you talking about Britain being kind of a wild west region, which I think is a really nice analogy? Does it become worse? Do it, does it become wilder? It's a really it's a, it's a fantastic question. Um, I, I always argue that the military presence in Britain was always problematic for the Roman Empire anyway. So. Because the far north was never conquered, Agricola claimed very briefly to have conquered the far north, and Severus may have been able to claim it if he'd not died in York in 211. But apart from that, the far north was never conquered. So you always have this militarised frontier in the north of the province, um, which, by the way, had a huge impact on the economy in the north of Roman Britain because it meant that the whole economy was bent on maintaining that military presence. Now, to maintain that, that northern border, I, I estimate in my PhD took thesis would have taken 12% of the whole Roman military establishment in what is only geographically 4% of the empire. So it's a massive over-commitment by the Romans just to maintain that border either on the Hadrian, on, on the line of Hadrian's Wall, Solway for Tyne, or very briefly on the line of the Antonine Wall, Clyde Fourth. Um, and later in the Roman Empire, actually, and Crausus is a great example, Britain is a hotbed of usurpers, simply because you're a long way from Rome and you do have a lot of soldiers. And soldiers need to be kept busy, okay? Uh, now, in Britain at this time, you have three legions. You had Legio Six Victrix in York, Legio Twenty Valeria Victrix in Chester, and Legio Two Augusta in, um, in Caerleon. And they very quickly came over to support um, Corosius. So clearly they were feeling unloved anyway, and they stayed loyal all the way through to Corosius being assassinated, which we'll come on to. Um, but they stayed loyal all the way through. So clearly they were feeling unloved. And frequently in Ro Roman British history, you have the legions themselves rebellion, uh, rebelling. I mean, I, I wrote a book about a guy called Pertinax, son of a slave who became the emperor of Rome which is like the, the, the sequel to the movie Gladiator in reality, in actual fact. Pertinax was one of the contemporaries of, 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 of uh, Maximus, uh, Russell Crowe, in, in Gladiator. And Pertinax served across the empire, a leading soldier, and then he was deployed to Britain by Commodus because the three legions had rebelled. And even then, when he arrived, one of the legions tried to kill him and killed all his guard and left him for dead. So Britain's always had, had that reputation as being problematic with the military. And I, I think this forced separation increasing after the fleet disappears into the 30 years, into the 280s, made it a lot worse. So when Corosius rebelled, I think actually he had a ready audience there already. And I can guarantee you that when you see the fine silver and particularly gold Aris coins that he minted with this increased precious metal content, the, the first people to receive them would have been the military leadership in Britain. 
Really great question, Zach. I'm liking the flattery. I'll take that. I'm also loving the detail of this because this is suddenly making much more sense to me. I just want to talk about the the coin element that you know we, we've touched on a couple of times here. Logistically, how much of a challenge is that? Obviously, it's a very ballsy move. It's showing that you have vision as a leader, that you understand the propaganda element, which you've talked about already. You know, people are going to see your face every time they carry out a transaction. But it's not an easy thing to do. You've got to make sure that you've got the resources. You're talking about a higher silver and gold content. You've got to make sure that you've got that to sustain your currency. How, how are there the resources to keep a currency of a higher caliber to the ones that the Romans have got going? I think access to the raw materials has to be a given here because factually we know from the very hard archaeological data, it's unquestionable that the corrosing coins, of which there are thousands. I mean, there are people, there are people who spend their entire lives uh, researching corrosing coins uh, and, and, and um, it, the, the data is there. Okay. So that's not questionable about the fact that it has the increased content of precious metals and the message being sent that's there. Um, so the question then is, if we assume that they have access to the precious metals to do it, remember, you can, of course, extract silver from lead, as an example. And there's lots of lead in Britain. Um, it's the skill, isn't it? It's having the skilled workers able to actually mint the coins, especially to create a mint from scratch, which would have been somewhere within the square mile in Roman London. And actually, if you want to really go into the detail, there is evidence there were two mints in Corrosian Britain, one of which may have been in the West Country, intriguingly. But the main first one in Roman Britain overall ever was in London. Now, when Carausius usurped, go back to my point that initially uh, it wasn't just Britain, it was northwestern Gaul as well, based around Boulogne. And if you go straight south from Boulogne, um, a little bit further into central France, you reach, you reach Rouen. And the, the, the theory I have, based on my own research in the, for the book, is that he was actually in Rouen, which was a major Roman city, um, when he usurped initially. And that's where he was. And there was um, a skilled workforce there minting coins. Uh, and I call it the temporary mint because he didn't stay there long. The only success Maximian had when he started pushing back uh, at the beginning of the usurpation was to retake the area around Rouen, but he couldn't get anywhere near Boulogne. So I think actually you have a staged withdrawal here. You have the skilled workforce in Rouen siding with Carausius or having no choice and then going to Boulogne. And then at the point he, he creates the first mint um, going to London, simply because clearly with the defence provided by the English Channel, London was safer than Boulogne. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'll tell you what, what's also great about this is we're seeing that kind of research thought process that goes into all of this where you're having to take all of the the threads and the tan the little tangible bits of evidence yeah and then weave it all together and i've always been fascinated at how ancient scholars managed to do that because you do have far less material than somebody like me has to, yeah. to work with and you know i'll I'll sit here and sulk that I've only got 10,000 documents to work with. And, you know, somebody <laughs> like you kind of exactly laughs at me and, and thinks, you know, get over yourself. Um, that's where, that's where, by the way, that's where, by the way, where being an archaeologist really helps because it's second nature to me. I mean, I'm, I'm excavating two Roman villas myself where I live in the Medway Valley. And it's second nature to me to, to look at the archaeology at the same time as the history and put them together. And especially with this story, one of the great things about crawl, it's worth remembering this, like, okay, when, when we find a coin hoard, it's actually a, a story of a terrible tragedy because a coin hoard is the per- portable wealth of a personal family who find themselves in an extreme set of circumstances where they fear they're going to lose everything. So they think they'll bury it and then come back and get it. The fact they don't come back means they're dead or they've had to run away, and the whole thing's been a failure. So a coin hoard is a story of a terrible tragedy. We have more coin hoards in Britain from the end of the Carousian Revolt than any other period. And that tells me that broadly the nobility and the senior military, while Carousian was still alive, supported him. And they realised that once the imperial centre came back and we can talk about it later with the invasion of Constantius Chlorus. Once the imperial centre came back, then then actually they they got nowhere to go. They could try and tough it out, or they could leg it and then come back a bit later. And they got caught out when the imperial centre came back. So it's really, I, I, I always find, find coin hoards very profound, actually. Wow, there's food for thought for the morning. Um, but that's quite a humbling thought. It's not anything I'd ever really kind of considered, but... That's a really good point. Um, North Sea Empire, we, we need to talk about this because you, you, we're talking a lot here about Roman Britain. You've kind of alluded to um, how a North Sea Empire might form with this kind of fact that initially uh, when Carausius um, bolts, when he usurps, he is in Rouen. But how does he end up building this empire is this a case of there's a lot of discontent in the region and he's able to capitalize on that and they're looking for a a regional leader or is there kind of a military conquest that has to go into building this empire right okay so 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 key point here is to consider how the Romans perceived the English Channel and the North Sea. So you with your Napoleonic hat on, um, and me with my interests, other interests, say, with the First or Second World War naval history, view the English Channel and the North Sea as a, as, as a physical barrier. Okay, It's a defensive barrier. It's what keeps Napoleon from invading. It's what keeps the Kaiser or Hitler from invading. Um, or it plays a key role in that. But for the Romans, it's totally different. Because the Romans thought of it as a point of connectivity without being able to communicate across the English Channel from, say, Dover or Richborough to uh, Boulogne. 
there was no Roman Britain. And that's one of the issues that Maximian faced. Um, so therefore, they viewed it totally differently. And, and crucially for us, we can see that reflected in the military, um, the military requirements of the British fleet, whether it's the Classis Britannica or whether it's later Carausius's fleet, because it had responsibility, both of them, not just for the waters around the main islands of Britain, but also for the whole continental coast up to the Rhine Delta. Okay, and even later, when we talk about the Saxon shore forts, we 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 as as Brits very very often don't look beyond our own shores and our own Saxon shore forts, all very well known. But actually, the chain continued on the continental coast as well, all part of the same responsibility of the Count of the Saxon shore later in the empire. So therefore, uh, it was absolutely natural for Carausius to consider the region around Boulogne and Britannia, it was actually two provinces by then, but we'll call it Britannia, as one and the same. Completely normal, especially from the perspective of an admiral and a maritime officer. Completely normal for him. So therefore, when he usurped, he would have been already using Boulogne and Dover and Richborough and probably, let's say, the Great Estuary around Bent Rice and Orham um, in North Norfolk, and probably South Shields or Wall's End on the Tyne. He was probably already using those as bases for his ships, but also Boulogne and other, other, other harbours, etc., military ports on the continental coast. So it's very easy for him just to think, you know, in fact, actually, it wasn't even easy. He wouldn't have thought of anything else. It's completely the way he thought of his world. That bit of northwestern Gaul around Boulogne and Britain, one and the same. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I see. It's it's so interesting to kind of have a, a different mindset because, like you say, my mindset is always kind of Western European. And sure, you think of, of the channel as a means of communication, but predominantly you think of it as a means of defense when you're thinking in yeah. military terms. And it's just a completely different perspective when when you consider it from from Rome. I guess also for the Romans, I mean they call the Mediterranean Mare Nostrum, don't they? Our sea. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, the, the sea as a barrier is perhaps more of an alien concept to them than it is to us today. There's a there's, I mean, there's, there's a phrase we use in archaeology, right? So it's a show-off phrase called phenomenology. And it's something I always keep in the back of my mind when I'm writing my books. Phenomenology broadly means trying to see things of people of the past through their eyes. So you're trying to understand their thought processes, uh, which is why, by the way, accessing really high-quality archaeological data and also pretty pretty decent uh, historical data for this particular story is so, so fantastic. So I always try, when I put in myself, whether it's in Pertinax or Severus, Caesar, Carausius, I always try very hard to see things through their own eyes. Let's talk, let's kind of stay with that theme then, because the Romans, they look at this and they go, hmm, this is a problem. And let's not pretend that they sit idly by. You talked already about Maximian and his attempts to reassert control, but give us a little bit more kind of detail on that, because it, you've kind of 
um, let us know already. It's not entirely successful, is it? Well, Maxim, Maxim is faced with huge embarrassment. He's, he's actually, he's, um, funnily enough, actually, when I began writing, writing the researching and writing the book, I, 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 I found that my personal view of him was a very negative one. Uh, which I'd never challenged. I just always thought he was a bit of an idiot, to be honest. And actually, if you look at his track record prior to dealing with Carausius and after, he's actually highly successful. He's equally as successful as a military commander as Carausius. Probably not as successful as we'll come on to Constantius Chlorus or Constantine, but certainly for um, for 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 him for, for the period either side of the Carausian Revolt, he is successful. He was appointed to be the co-emperor of Diocletian in the West because of his military track record. You know, he's got to hold the Rhine from the Franks and the Germans. Um, and he finds himself um, with this ridiculous set of circumstances. You know, you can almost say it's a sort of a series of misunderstandings, which is very common in the Roman world simply because of the distance as news travels. Probably takes about a month for uh, news from Britain to get to Rome um, in normal times. So that, therefore, as a bizarre set of circumstances, he finds himself being the Roman emperor who's faced with losing Britain. You know, <laughs> it's not going to be good for his track record, is it? Losing a big chunk of the empire. It might be the wild west of the empire, but it's got three legions. That's a tenth of the legionary complement of the whole Roman empire and an equivalent number of auxiliaries. So it's going to be bad. So therefore, he decides he's going to have to deal with it. Oh, it's only, he thinks only it's only an EU surplus, not a problem, is it? So he's initially successful in Rouen. Excellent. It's all going to be dead easy. Right. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a fleet as well. Now, that's noteworthy in itself, right? So it shows that even though the Classic Britannica disappeared, let's say, in the, two, in, in the um, 250s, uh, by the time we get to the 280s, there is still the capability, probably in the Rhine Delta somewhere, to build two fleets. <laughs> so you have Carausius's first fleet, and then Maximian now builds his own fleet, and then that fleet disappears from history. <laughs> Right, there's a reference to it being built in one panegyric, saying, "And this fleet will be so big, it's going to easily reconquer Britain." And then that's it. And then it's mentioned briefly about three years later in another panegyric to um, Maximian, saying, "Oh, we won't talk about that." <laughs> so, so basically, it got it's something it got destroyed somehow. It could have either have been destroyed, and we, we're talking about 500 ships. It could have either have been destroyed in some kind of major storm event in the North Sea, which is plausible that the largest loss of life ever in, in, at sea in history was in the context of a roman fleet carrying a hundred thousand troops being destroyed at sea in the second punic war so it is plausible or it could have fought a sea engagement either along the coast or at sea with corrosive's fleet and lost probably unlikely i think actually very little evidence you have these huge battles at sea after the after the beginning of the roman uh, principate empire or Carotis was very clever in paying off Frankish and German mercenaries, not only to serve in his own army in Britain and Northern Gaul, but also to keep causing problems for Maximin on the Rhine to distract him. So I think it's fairly plausible, actually, that basically Carotis paid the Franks in the Rhine Delta to torch the new fleet <laughs> in a huge embarrassment to Maximian. But the beauty is he just disappears from history. And Maximian then, that's probably 286, 28, that's probably 290. And then from that point, Maximian doesn't try again. So he's basically shot his bolt. He can't afford to try again. And he has to wait 
until 293 uh, to try again. And that's a really remarkable event in British history because in 293, for the first time in the context of British history, we have this individual, Constantius Chlorus, who's the father of Constantine the Great, uh, emerging in our own historical narrative. Constantius Chlorus is also a successful general on the western or northern frontier, on the Rhine, Rhine and Danube, actually has invaded north of the Rhine successfully. Um, and at this point, Diocletian and Maximian have come to the conclusion that, that they need support to run their empire. So they appoint two junior emperors. So they become the Augustus senior emperor in the uh, Maximian West, Diocletian East. And then they appoint two junior Caesar emperors, Constantius Chlorus uh, West, Galerius um, East. Uh, and it's at this point that the new, newly appointed uh, junior emperor in the West, Constantius Chlorus, the successful general, is tasked by Maximian, go and do something I couldn't do, sort this chap out uh, with his North Sea Empire. I'm getting sick of this. It's, so it's an irritation. He's even minting coins by this time with his own face next to my face and my mate Diocletian. That's rubbish. Go and deal with him for me. And Constantius Chlorus is the real deal. He doesn't try the Hail Mary and invade Britain straight away. He knows that politically... Constantius Chlorus has to maintain his foothold in Gaul in Boulogne. So he, he besieges Boulogne and then very cleverly, emulating Alexander the Great actually in Tyre, builds a mole out across the harbour uh, in uh, Boulogne and that seals a large part of Chlorus' uh, uh, fleet in Boulogne and then quickly invests it. And in interestingly, most of the troops there come over to his own side. And at that point... Carausius is assassinated in London because he has this huge PR disaster. He's lost his toehold uh, in, in, in Gaul. <clears throat> and one of the stories which is put about about how he dies is that he has this uh, number two called Electus, who's one of the big villains of British history. Nobody's got a nice word to say about him. He's even portrayed as being ugly and scheming, so almost like a baddie out of Asterix the Gaul. Um, and apparently, one story says that Electus waits until Carausius is in the bath and there's now trouble in Britain because they've heard the bad news from the continent. And he stabs him through the eye with a stylus. It's <laughs> the way to go, isn't it? So he dies with a stylus stabbed through the eye. The, 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 the pen is mightier than the sword in this case. And um, from this point, for the last three years of the North Sea Empire, you have Electus running it, the bad guy running it. And gradually from that time, my research shows that the British military broadly stopped supporting Electus, but they don't get involved anymore, stay in quarters. So Electus has to employ more and more and more Frankish German mercenaries, um, called Fuederates. It's one of the first big employments of Fuederates in Roman Britain. And Constantius Chlorus then, um, in three years later, takes his time. He builds a third fleet. <laughs> So he builds another fleet. So clearly the shipbuilders in the Rhine Delta are very busy and good. So he builds a third fleet. And now he's a genius. He comes up with something equivalent to the Normandy invasion with its feints, etc. Uh, and he realizes that actually he's got to get this right because if it goes wrong, it's going to be very difficult for the Romans to go back. So he comes up with this strategy where in 286, he takes a third of the fleet and a third of his army, which is largely the Western army, by the way. It's a serious army. And he sends it down the, the, the Thames estuary and then stops within sight of Londinium. And that fixes Electus and a large part of his army in place. Classic military strategy. But then he goes, it sends two thirds of his force, uh, navy and army, to your part of the world where, where, where you are. He sends them down to the Solent. 
and they land in the soft underbelly of Roman Britain round the back of the later Saxon shore forts, which I believe Electus and Carausius earlier probably built like Richborough, Limney, um, Dover, uh, Pevensey and Porchester. I think they're all part of the later chain built by them to keep the imperial centre out. But, but Constantius Chlorus is a genius. So two thirds of his forces landed in the Solent, quickly defeats uh, Electus, who dies actually in the engagement, and then there's a major event which finishes the whole um, uh, North Empire off. The last part of Britain holding out is London, and that's because a lot of Frankish mercenaries are still there. And the Londoners get word out to Constantius Chlorus that London's about to fall. Uh, and so Constantius Chlorus makes a power play, quickly invests London, seizes it, and saves it from being sacked by the Franks. Hallelujah, everybody's happy. Great stuff. Roman Britain's now part of the imperial fold again. The story's over. Constantius is dead. Electus is dead. The North Sea Empire is dead. But for us as historians and archaeologists, we have one last piece of data, which I just want to mention briefly, and I recommend your listeners uh, look this up online right now, the Arras Medallion. So the Arras Medallion was minted a year later in 287 in Trier, which is the capital of uh, Constantius Chlorus' capital. And this features on the on one side, obviously, the face is Constantius Chlorus. Chlorus means um, means the white, by the way. He got very pale skin. And uh, on the obverse face, you have an amazing image. So at the bottom, you have a Liburne war galley. At left, you have Constantius Chlorus on his charger rescuing London. In the middle, you have a supplicant Londoner in contemporary dress, beautifully created. The coin's about that big, by the way. The medallion's about that big. Um uh, dressed in contemporary clothing, saying, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. You're amazing, uh, supplicant. But then in the background, you have walls clearly made of stone and towers clearly made of stone. And that is the first ever physical representation of London in history. And it's mind-blowing. The first time you see that, for me, put the hairs on the back of my neck up, when you suddenly realise what you're looking at. So that's why this story is so amazing. It's one of these unwritten stories of British history, which no one knows much about, but actually it turns out to be really, really, really important. And, and physically there, you have the first ever representation of Roman London. Wow. I'm, I'm slightly blown away by that and, and the eloquence that you delivered it. Um, the, the questions for this episode basically went out the window the second you started talking. But I want to just uh, rewind a little bit before we wrap up on this because we are sadly running out of time. Um, you mentioned how this is given to uh, Constantius Chlorus um, as a, a job to do. Look, I couldn't do this. You go make it happen. Is that meant to be a poison chalice? Because we always kind of Ooh, associate great, great point. power plays with this, don't we? You know, is this meant to be, okay, look, I'm the top dog. You can go and attempt this and that's going to occupy you and it's going to humiliate you and then I will still look like the better person or is this just, look, there's a job that needs to be done, go do it. Right, so there's a very, very good analogy where we can benchmark this against and that is Constantius II in the 350s appointing Julian, later Julian the Apostate, to uh, reconquer Gaul from predating Alemannia of Franks, which he did actually and I think actually Julian was being set up there to fail. Certainly the way that Constantius um, the second behaved 
in the background there was clearly to the detriment of Julian. Just turned out Julian was a genius emperor, a general that succeeded. So if, if that, there's a template, let's push it back um, to the 280s and 290s. Um, right, Maximi's only been in power since 286. So this is within a, within, within a decade of him taking power. His boss is Diocletian, who is like one of the one of the top three for me Roman emperors. The real real deal, you know. He actually changed the nature of the empire to um, to, to set it on a firm footing. Uh, also, Maximian, having written the book, to clearly to me is a realist, and I am actually a PR man by profession, a journalist and a PR man, and. Looking at things from Maximian's perspective, I don't think he could have afforded to lose Britain, actually. He'd have lost too much too much in the eyes of Diocletian and the Roman Republic. So therefore, I think there's a real politic involved here. I actually think he looked at it and thought, you know what, I've had a go. Um, I'm clearly not up to the job. Um, this guy's the real deal. And by the way, Constantius Chlorus perfectly happily sits there as the Caesar until he's legally in the normal chain of events appointed later the Augustus when he comes back to Britain again by the way and dies in York in 306 which should be a good ending point for us there because of who then becomes the emperor in 306 in Britain um, I think Maximian basically knew that he got to win here so he put the best guy in charge which is a so brave so thing it's a brave thing by the way to do Absolutely. Let's let's stay with that thread then um, that you, you're just going to give us that you're doing my job for me, I love it um, come back anytime. Um, but you talk about kind of the aftermaths and the legacies. Um, and, and this this works in a number of areas. I mean, the fact that Carosius is forgotten is curious in its own right. Um, then you've got Constantius Chlorus, who we've talked already about in terms of who uh, you know, his son goes on to become the emperor that he does. Um, so just give us a, a, a sense of the legacy of all of this. To, to, it's a lovely cue to do two, two very nice wraps, actually. So firstly, why is Carausius relevant in the world in which we live? Well, he's around today for us to research uh, because he was re, re, uh, reinvented, sort of dragged down to the mists of time by antiquarian historians in the 18th and 19th century. I mean, you're a Napoleonic specialist, I, I think, Zach. Well, it's around this time that Carausius gets dragged back by antiquarians who are looking at Britain and in a new way as an imperialist power around the world. So there's cultural cultural association um, and cultural appropriation with previous empires. The greatest one, of course, is Rome. This is where Roman Britain becomes such a big thing in the British narrative of British history. And this character is a man who stood in Britain against the rest of the world. You know, Britain's under threat from Napoleon, uh, King Arthur. Oh, well, there's another guy, Carausius. So that's where he comes back into the narrative of British history. Uh, and then the coins start being found and then obsessives start really going to town on these coins and suddenly everyone realises there's more coins from this period in Britain than from any other period. And that's that's really where we get to today. And, and the legacy in his own contemporary world is a really, really important one because Constantius Chlorus comes to Britain, defeats Carausius, stays for a, sort of six months, resets everything, uh, everything cracks on normally. Then at the beginning of the, the, the fourth, uh, fourth century, there's problems again. So as the Augustus now, the senior emperor in the West, he comes over again. He's campaigning against the Picts in the far north. So number one, it's the first time the Picts are mentioned in history, fighting Constantius Chlorus. 
So again, another big seminal mark there in British history. And then uh, having he calls his son over from him, who's now in danger in uh, the east, where he's in the eastern court, and his son is Constantine. And if Constantine joins him in York and fights with him, and then it's in York in 306 where Constantius Chlorus finally dies, um, just in natural causes, and Legio VI Victrix in York uh, immediately announce, uh, because Constantius Chlorus has suggested they do so, Constantine's the emperor, and the rest is history. Constantine I is announced uh, the Western Augustus. He then spends through to 324, conquering the rest of the Roman Empire. He's the only excuse me, the only usurper in British history who worked. They all failed apart from him. But he, he won so spectacularly, he cast the story of nearly every other Roman emperor, many world emperors and world rulers of any kind, into the shadows. Uh, and by 324, is the, um, he's the, 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 the emperor of the whole empire, east and west. Of course, the key thing for us here in the Western world is it's, Con it's Constantine who effectively... Um, legalizes the worship of Christianity and, and, and then within 100 years it's a dominant form of religion in the Roman world and one of the key legacies we have in the modern world from the Roman period is the Catholic Church the Roman Church all begins with him or it actually begins with his father Constantius Chlorus or it begins with Carausius who is father defeated wow just wow Simon what an interview uh, that's that's incredible I'm not going to give you the option you're coming back at some point. Um, we have a lot of Roman history to talk about, I suspect. Um, your books, we can't do all 16 of them, but I'm going to say them again because people are absolutely going to want to go and read them off the back of this. How the Roman military built the empire. Romans, Roman Britain's missing legion, Alexander versus Caesar, and what we've been talking about today, Roman Britain's pirate king, Carausius, Constantius Chlorus, and the fourth Roman invasion of Britain. Simon, what a joy. Thank you for an epic interview. And I'll, I'll, we'll see you again very, very soon. Thank you for having me again. I love working with you guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 